0: well good morning everyone and we're turning to our scripture reading uh, in romans chapter 9 romans chapter 9 and at verse number 19 you will say to me then why does god still find fault For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, Only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Amen. May God's word touch our hearts uh, today. So here we are again today, Romans chapter 9, on this uh, fairly tricky chapter that we started last week that deals with. God in his sovereignty, with God in his righteousness and his purposes, and in particular with the, the people that were dear to the heart of the apostle, his own people, the Jewish, the Jewish people. Now, let me begin by making a wee comment on uh, verse number 13 that I didn't actually have time to mention last week. It's this uh, difficult verse which says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And I know for most of us, we're saying, well, we've been learning week after week that God is love. Uh, we've been learning that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I mean, what does this mean, that Esau I, I have hated? So I think it's, it's important to try and say something about what that means because absolutely God is love and, and, and the, the, the way the word hated is not the way we think it means. So, so first of all, it is a relative term. So for instance, uh, in the Gospels when the Lord Jesus spoke about people who would come after him and who would follow him, he said on one occasion... Unless a man or a woman hates his father and mother, he cannot be my disciple. Now, Christ was not advocating that people started hating their parents. Absolutely not. But what he was talking about was the importance of relative priority. Who would have the first place? Who would have the greatest love? which of course is a theme consistent with the whole of the Bible that we will love the Lord our God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind it is a relative term and in the same way it is used in a relative way in our verse that is before us second thing about it is that it's actually referring to God placing his love on somebody and and God did not place his love On Esau. In the same way that he placed his love. On Jacob. And the third point. Is the quotation. Because this is a quotation. Does not come. From the record. Of the life of Jacob and Esau. In Genesis. Which is the very first book of. Our Old Testament. The quotation actually comes. From the first chapter of. The book of Malachi. Which is the last of the Old Testament book. So right at the very end of the Old Testament, this is where this quotation comes in. And the quotation doesn't just include these men as individuals, but it includes the nations that they represented, that came from them. And if you read that passage, it refers to Edom. The Edomites were the the folks that came from Esau. And the way that they treated the Israelites. It is an inference about the life of Esau himself. If you read Hebrews chapter 12, he's described there as a profane, godless man who, who just had no time uh, for the, the things of God and devalued them and trampled them underfoot. And the Edomites were vicious in what they did uh, to the Israelites. And that chapter in Malachi talks about the people with whom the Lord is angry. I don't know if that's helpful. I found these things a bit helpful as I was considering the meaning of that verse back in 13. But I'm sure we still have lots of questions uh, about this chapter of Jacob being chosen rather than Esau being chosen. And and Paul again voices the question that is in all of our minds. In verse number 19. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? If everything is all predetermined, if God has placed his love on Jacob and not on Esau, well, why does he then hold us accountable for decisions that we make or don't make? Because no one has resisted his will. Surely this can't be right. Well, I want you to notice how that question that probably all of us are asking is answered in this passage. Because it's not initially answered in the way that you would normally expect it. Because it's not as if an explanation as such is given. It's not as if. We're given a bit of insight into the workings of all of this. Instead, what happens is um, an appeal to the greatness and the majesty of God in comparison to the smallness of who we are as human beings. And then the counter question comes in, and this is the question, of course, that we put as the kind of heading uh, for today's talks uh, where it says in verse number 20 who are you o man to answer back to god in a sense we're going to be looking at this question in two ways this morning i mean initially we're going to be uh, you know fundamentally the question is asked about about us about people who are you o man to answer back to god But there is a sense in which that question is asked about God in this passage. Who who are you? And we're finding something out about ourselves, but we're also finding something else about God. There's there's a two-edged sword, if you like, as far as this particular question uh, is concerned. We were discussing some of these things in the staff uh, meeting uh, this week and then Alex was telling me that on one occasion she was speaking to somebody when they stayed in Dubai and uh, he had said to her when you when you come to when you come to matters like this difficult things like this it's it's a little bit like trying to teach your dog mathematics now you might well have a pretty smart dog which uh, will sit when you say sit which will give you a paw and uh, when you Call it to come back, he obeys your every command. But uh, if you start having a discussion with your dog about the finer points of Pythagoras, all right, or ask him to work out the area of a circle, uh, or have a wee discussion about what do you think of algebra and geometry, I mean, you know very well that that, that dog is not going to get it. No matter how smart you think your dog is, it's on a different level to what a dog can cope with. that's where we really are here There there are things that are being talked about concepts that are really on a level that we as human beings cannot cope with and don't understand and can't fit together and seem paradoxical and seem illogical to us and yet that is only because we are a dog and we can't understand maths It's to do with the greatness of God. Um, If you were to look at another kind of day-to-day example of that, it's a little bit like the argument regarding uh, genetics and environment as far as health is concerned. I mean, some people will say, we can map your genes out, and if you have this particular genetic thing, you know, I'm afraid you're going to get Parkinson's disease or diabetes or whatever, or, or, or a form of cancer. Whereas people will say, well that can't be. You know, so, so that means it doesn't matter if I smoke cigarettes or do whatever. That has no bearing at all on my health. Surely it has to do with me and the way I live my life and the things that I do. That surely has to have some bearing on that. And the argument will go on. and 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 It's very difficult at times for people to fit these things that seem paradoxical uh, together. And that's where we are. I'm I'm, I'm reminded a little bit about the book of Job here. You remember Job in his difficulties and distress as a whole barrage of questions that he levels at God. You know, why is this happening? And eventually... God reveals himself. You can read about that, for instance, in chapter 38 of the book of Job. Well, well worth having a read of that chapter. And, and and in turn, God starts to ask Job certain questions. And says to Job, for instance, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? You know, when all the sons of, of, of God sang for joy together. Are you able, for instance, to loose... Um, Orion's belt can you call out all the constellations of heaven where do you know where the the wild goats give birth and there's a whole series of things that are mentioned and and at the end of it of course job just says i can't answer any of that i'm afraid and and the answer is something like what we have here Things are at a different level because, I mean, the point is, I've kind of eased our way very gradually into what is said in this chapter because, in fact, we're not just described as dogs versus mathematics. What is the example and the illustration in this chapter? It is about inanimate clay. Now, if you can't teach mathematics to a dog, you're going to have a real problem teaching it to a lump of clay. And yet, that is what is said here. On the one hand, what are you, O man? You're just just like that. And, And on the other hand, there is the potter. With all his ability, with all his creativity. And he can do whatever he wants. As far as this lump of clay is concerned. And who are you to have a discussion? Never mind level an accusation or criticism against the potter things are at a totally different level altogether so so that is the way that he answers fundamentally the question but there, there is a second part to the answer that is given and the second part of the quest of, of the answer um revolves round about um verse 22 this What if? Just supposing. What if God, and what he says is this. He wants to show his wrath. And he wants to show his power. And he does that by showing his patience to those who are described as the vessels of wrath. And he does that in order to make known, to highlight... The riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy. Which he has prepared for glory. What if that's the way that things work? And really what he's saying is this. That the glory of God's mercy is seen all the more against the backdrop of the sin and the problem of others. What if? Now, there is a key point, actually, in this verse, which I'd have to say that I had never noticed before until I came to study this this week. And the point, the key point is, um, first of all, seen in verse number 23, where it talks about these vessels of mercy, if you like, that the potter determines to make. And it says here, about the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory god has actively been involved in the preparation of vessels of mercy for glory now that is in contrast back up to verse 22 with vessels of wrath And if you notice, it does not say that he prepared them for destruction. It reads, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. It doesn't say he prepared them for destruction. God was not actively involved. The argument is the argument that takes us back to Pharaoh that we looked at last week. Pharaoh who kept on hardening his heart until God judicially hardened his heart. The point is this, that people prepare themselves for wrath. God does not actively prepare people for destruction. He actively prepares people for glory. We prepare ourselves for that. So these are some of the the things that we have to concentrate on these difficult things that we have here now what he says is this as he thinks about those who are described as the vessels of glory he's he's leading us on to this and he's leading us on to the fact that i mean that's people like us people who who were not jewish People who were foreigners to all the, the covenants of promise, who were completely alienated from, from all of these benefits and privileges from the past, and, and, and that, that is us. And he, and he has some quotations here uh, that he makes from the book of Hosea and the book of Isaiah to make that point. You know, people who, who were never the people of God have now been loved and are the sons of the living God. Now, I'm not going to get into some of the intricacies here, but here is some other homework. If you go and read where that uh, these references come from in Hosea chapter 1 and 2, you will find that there is a very clever and important wordplay that doesn't really come out here, but you will, f- you will get the background to it if you read these two chapters uh, from the book of Hosea. But what he's really saying is this. He's saying that uh, only a remnant are going to be left as far as Israel is concerned. And this shouldn't be news. These are predictions and prophecies that came from, from our Old Testament. That the Gentiles proportionately will come into the blessing of God. Where the Jews, only a very small remnant of them will be left. Who will be true believers. And these things were predicted. Now, how are we going to try and bring all of this together? How are we going to try and conclude? Well, that's what he tries to do himself, of course, in verse number 30, when it says, what shall we say then? How are we going to conclude this? Well, we're going to try and um, conclude what seems to be this paradox. Because we're now coming into the section that deals with the way that people respond to the gospel and how people respond and decide and the choices that they make to hearing the word of God. And, and, and for us, I mean, that's so difficult, isn't it, to put that together. God's sovereignty on the one hand, the fact that we are held accountable for the choices that we make on the other. But they're both here. They're both absolutely here. And I think the only way that we can fit these things together is bearing in mind some of the comments I've already made. You know, to get back to maths, actually. My mum was a maths teacher, so maybe that's why I'm saying this. But um, in maths, you know, they talk about parallel lines. And they define parallel lines as meeting in infinity. Well, these, these two points parallel points parallel truths they only meet in eternity that is the in the mind of god is the only way that they can be put uh, together and there is an old example of this that i think is still very valid and it's this that coming to christ is a little bit like uh, approaching a doorway and you walk up to the door and you notice that Above the door, there, there are words that are written. And the words say this, Whosoever will may come. Who, whoever wants to can come. And you, and you walk through that door because you, you have been, you've been given that invitation. And, and as you walk through the door, you turn around and you see, in fact, that there's writing on the back of the doorway. And the writing on the back of the doorway is another verse from Scripture, which says, Chosen in Christ. Before the foundation of the world and and both of these things are true when we come to the early parts of chapter nine and and the sovereignty of God is emphasized, we have to talk about that when we come to the end of chapter nine and into chapter ten, and the responsibility of of how I react to the gospel is emphasized. well, we have to emphasize that they, they are they are both here for us. To look at today. Uh, The Welsh preacher. Martin Lloyd-Jones had this helpful point to make. He said. The truth of election. Explains why anyone is saved. We can't be saved. Without the work of God. But the truth. Of man's responsibility. Explains why people are lost. It is because of our unbelief. And they are both here. So. Who are you? we've thought about that as far as god is concerned we're now going to think about it as far as we are concerned maybe ask that question about yourself who am i and you can describe that in a number of different ways i suppose but obviously from a a spiritual perspective is, is where we're coming from and 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 there's a couple of points that are made now in this this last section that tries to bring it together He talks about people who could be described as people who have faith in Christ. And he talks secondly about people who build their life on Christ. And we ask ourselves the question, we should ask ourselves the question this morning, who are you? Who am I? So, I mean, from the point of view of faith, again, he's talking about the Jews over and against the Gentiles. And he says about the Gentiles, as you can see here, that here were people with no background and they they attained righteousness. And of course, that's the big point, always has been throughout the entire book of Romans. Righteousness, being right with God, being in a right position and a right standing rather than a wrong position before God. And uh, he says these people attained it. They reached that. They grasped it. They were able to hold it. And the reason they were able to hold it was because they did it by faith. On the other hand, you have Israel with all their privileges and background. And, and they, they attempted that, but they didn't succeed in reaching righteousness this right standing before god and the reason they did not reach it was because they didn't have faith as a vital ingredient they held on to the whole thing that you know i'm a decent kind of person because i try to to live by the law and they didn't understand all of that you know it's not just the fact that we don't have the capability But we don't have the time. You know. You don't have the time. To live your life. And do all the things that you think are adequate. To attain the righteousness of God. The only basis. Is faith. In Christ. And trusting completely. In the finished work of Christ upon the cross. To say it is enough. That Jesus died. And that he died for me. That is all I need. Is to have all my confidence in Christ. Nothing else is required. Who am I? Am I a person who has that kind of attitude? Who has grasped Christ by faith for salvation. In order to have a right standing with God. And then the second point. Is there's this idea of, of Christ being described as a stone. That's a very appropriate description, actually, uh, of the Lord Jesus, which is used, and this reference from Isaiah, is used in a couple of books in our New Testament, not just here in Romans. You'll also find that in 1 Peter as well. And in 1 Peter, uh, the picture that is drawn is this one. It's the picture of a building site. And uh, the builders... Um, they're they're looking round about for for stones that they feel are, are good quality stones that they can use in building this house. And they come to this particular stone and they look at it and they think it's worthless. It's not of the appropriate consistency. They reject it. Later on, when the house is built, what they actually discover is That this stone has become the most important stone in the whole building. It's the capstone. God has put it there. And the idea was this. That the rulers of the time. They looked at Christ. And as far as what they were building. Religiously. Worthless. Doesn't have a place in what we are building. They rejected him. They put him to the side. But God has made him the capstone the head of the corner that's how peter uses this slightly different uh, in this particular one is the fact that it's the idea of when they come to this stone that's lying in the yard and they approach it they they fall over it They, they they trip over the stone they stumble over this stone first corinthians chapter one carries this idea as well actually and um, I'm going to quote uh, what it says there. It talks there about we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. You see, they came to Christ in particular to the preaching of the cross of Christ. That salvation is through the work of Christ upon the cross. This is essential. This is fundamental. This is at the very heart of things. And they couldn't, they couldn't accept that. They couldn't get over that. It was a real stumbling block for them. They, they just could not accept that point—that they had to come, in a sense, with all their weakness, and, and just admit that only Christ can save me. That I can do nothing to contribute to that. They just—and that was an—it was offensive to them. They took great offence when that was that was mentioned. People still take offence. Maybe some of us today. In a sense, I find that an offensive thing, that the only way in which I can be right with God is by coming to the cross of Christ and seeing God's provision for me and having to place my faith not in myself but in Christ and in Christ alone. That is the stumbling block, that is the offense of the cross. That's why people get so angry with the gospel. That's why there's this kind of whole theme of anger and irritation that works its way through this chapter as far as these questions that people are asking about God. They find it offensive. That's why the gospel and Christianity is is something that people feel antagonistic towards at times. And so what we've got to get beyond here is that and ask ourselves, who am I? Am I somebody who has chosen to build my life on Christ? Am I somebody who looks on Christ and rather than rejecting that stone, says, well, this is absolutely the foundation that I am going to build my life upon. On Christ, the solid rock I'll stand, all other ground is is sinking sand. You know, this is the foundation. Is that the kind of person I am? And then, almost the last phrase is this. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Of course, this is almost taken from that uh, parable that Jesus talked about, about the, the two builders. When the storms came, the man who built his house on the sand, the house... Was swept away they were put to shame on that great day when we stand before god as we all will after these short lives of ours uh, when we die and uh, a decision is made by god it will be based on this who have i built upon will i be put to shame on that day because i have not built on christ Or will I be welcomed into eternal glory? Because I have been built on that sure and certain foundation. This last verse can be translated in a slightly different way. And it can read like this. Whoever believes in him will never be disappointed. Never be disappointed. Now this is a a tremendous point to finish on today. So many things in life disappoint us. So many people, uh, we have found, have let us down. Uh, we thought they were one thing. We found them to be something else, not quite what we hoped for. Leaders, organizations, institutions, things that we place great hope in. And, and we've all been disappointed in these things. Here, here is a cast iron 100% guarantee that i can give to you today if we believe in christ you will not be disappointed you might be disappointed in yourself at times you will never be disappointed in christ when it comes to that great final day if you have trusted in him he will carry you through absolutely and if you as phil was reminding us at the start delight yourself in him you will find yourself never disappointed. You will never find that there are, there are feet of clay. There's a skeleton in the cupboard as far, as far as Christ and his word and his gospel is concerned. You might be disappointed in some of his followers. You might be disappointed in the church. But you will never be disappointed in Christ himself. And that's, that's where it takes us. It reminded me, as I was thinking about this, of that wonderful story about Solomon and the and the Queen of Sheba. So the Queen of Sheba travelled miles and miles because she'd heard something about the wisdom of Solomon. Now, if the Queen of Sheba is anything like the majority of us, I'm sure she was thinking, "Really? Is he? As, is he as wise as all of that? Surely." He can't be as good as that. I think you will find that things are a little bit different than we've been led to believe when we get there and we meet the man himself. Well, the record is this, that when she got to Solomon and she listened to his wisdom and she saw how everything was set up, it said that there was no more breath left within her. And she actually says to Solomon, you know, it was a true report I heard in my country. In fact, she said, the half of it has not even been told to me. It's not, what I heard was not half as good as the real thing. Was she disappointed? Not at all. And so that is the great thing that we can hold out. As far as our Lord Jesus Christ. And his cross. And his redemption. And his wonderful gospel is concerned. You will never be Disappointed. In building your life on Christ. And so this question is the one that lingers for us all to, uh, this morning. Who are you, O man? Who are, who are you, O woman? Who are you, first of all, to, to accuse God? Recognize who you are in your smallness against His majesty and greatness. But am I a person? A person of faith. A person who builds on Christ ultimately a person who will never be disappointed in him now shall we pray lord thank you that we can come to you despite your greatness and glory we can come to you because of our lord jesus christ the great sacrifice for sin the mediator between god and men the man christ jesus who gave his life a ransom we trust in him We grasp him by faith. We have no other argument. We have no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Lord, thank you. There is no disappointment in looking to him. We look to you. We look to him. We see greatness and perfection and beauty and love and yet justice and judgment. We look to ourselves. And Lord, may it be that in these hearts of ours today, We find a faith that is resting on Christ. We see a decision that builds our life on his foundation. We see a sense of delight in knowing that trusting in him, we will never be disappointed as we pray in his name. Amen.